This podcast is supported by award number 2019JUFX K001, awarded by the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. The opinions, research findings, and recommendations presented here are those of the hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Department of Justice. Welcome, everyone, to Season 3 of Reflections on Research. Uh, I'm your host, Mike Geringer, the Director of Research and Evaluation at Mentor, the National Mentoring Partnership. And I'm really happy to have you with us for this uh, upcoming season of Reflections on Research. If this is your first time listening, uh, this is a podcast in which we talk about new research, uh, new studies, new evaluations that are happening in the field of youth mentoring and you know, related fields, education, youth development, anything that talks about the relationships that young people have with caring adults in their lives, either through formal programs or through schools or other institutions where they meet adults who might care about them. So what we try and do here is make the research a little more fun and interesting and lively by uh, just having a conversation with leading scholars from around the world about what they're learning and how we can apply it in our work with young people. So, as a note, uh, this is sponsored by the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. They fund a project called the National Mentoring Resource Center that Mentor is uh, lucky to be leading for them. And, you know, I really want to thank OJJDP up front here for their investment in youth mentoring and for the work of the NMRC. Uh, It's really a, a key effort here in the States to get mentoring research and apply that research to the work that we're doing with young people. So I really want to thank them for their support. It's really critical, I think, to the mentoring movement in the U.S. And and we'll be talking a little bit today about a research review that OJJDP uh, had the NMRC do in the last year. So we thank them for their support. Um, so I do want to set up our topic a little bit today for this first episode. And Uh, We're going to be talking today about the intersection of mentoring and substance use and misuse by young people. The reason we kind of got uh, into this topic and our work on the NMRC last year was the administration, I think, really tasked all branches of the federal government with coming up with some kind of response to the opioid crisis. I think, to their credit, the administration recognized that this was a a very serious public health crisis that needed to be addressed in this country. And really, I think across government asked every agency with coming up with how they could help with the response. And uh, one of the things that uh, the Department of Justice, that OJJDP did in working with us, is they came to us and said, well, what do we know about how mentors can help with young people that are either impacted by opioids because their family or their community is is being ravaged by that, or perhaps they themselves have become uh, users and are struggling with addiction issues uh, just in their own lives. And so it was a great opportunity to do a little bit of digging into the research, not only around opioids specifically, but around 
what we know about how mentors both prevent the onset of uh, use of substances by young people and also how they can be helpful on the treatment end of things. And we'll be talking about that quite a bit with our guests today. So one of the things that we produced that my two guests uh, worked on last year was a, a research review that really dove into that research and really tried to synthesize and summarize what it is we know about uh, mentoring and substance use. So to that end, I'll be introducing our two guests with us today. Uh, first is Jazam Erdem, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Koch University, which I believe is in Istanbul, Turkey. Uh, so thank you for joining us from the other side of the globe, Jazam. Jazam is a licensed uh, marriage and family therapist and a clinical supervisor. Her research interests are youth mentoring and family-based interventions for at-risk youth and their families. During her doctoral years here in the United States, uh, she worked on a NIDA-funded randomized control trials, uh, testing the efficacy of interventions for substance-abusing runaway and homeless youth, as well as their parents in recovery. Her most recent research project examines resilience and protective social ties among incarcerated youth, and that's funded by the Science Academy Award in Turkey. Uh, in addition, she and her team have developed a rehabilitation-oriented recidivism prevention program for substance-abusing youth in probation, which is currently being implemented in 21 cities nationwide. So welcome, Jazam. Thank you so much. Thank you for the introduction, and it's, uh, it's great to be part of this podcast today. Awesome. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we also have Jazam's uh, co-author on the research review that I mentioned earlier, and that is uh, Michelle Kaufman. And Michelle is an assistant professor in the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. She is a social psychologist by training, and her research focuses on health disparities created by harmful social contexts and unequal access to power and resources. Dr. Kaufman's most recent work looks at adolescent health and the intersection of mentoring and technology on preventing teen substance use, sexual risk, and mental distress. She holds one of the only NIH grants, uh, National Institutes for Health, uh, for those who don't know the acronym, uh, focused on mentoring to prevent adolescent substance use. So it's great to have you, Michelle. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Mike. Happy to be here. Okay, so let's dive into this topic and one that uh, I was very curious to to read your review and, and lots of great information in it. Folks can download that from the NMRC website if they're interested. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about where to find that at the end of the podcast here. Uh, but Jazem, I want to start with you and kind of start with the broad question here. One of the things that struck me when reading your evidence review was just how little research there was on the connection between mentoring and substance use prevention or intervention. We always, at least in my mind, always associate mentoring with outcomes like reduced drug use or preventing uh, the start of drug use, perhaps. And, you know, the landmark Big Brothers Big Sisters study from the, the 90s got a lot of attention in part because one of the main findings was. Uh, that it delayed, I believe, uh, the onset of, of substance use. But when you really do a thorough lit search and kind of dig deep into the studies that are out there, there's been surprisingly little published research around mentoring and substance use. I, I would have expected more studies for you to draw on. So I guess my question is, why do you think that is? Um, do you think most mentoring studies kind of don't look at substance use outcomes or 
Do treatment programs rarely use mentors? What, what do you think explains the fact that there was kind of less research to draw from than one might think here? Um, thank you. I, I think that's a quite a valid question. It's quite it's surprising that there there are a few studies outlining those outcomes and uh, examining substance use and mentoring and the association between the two. Uh, there may be several reasons uh, for that, and um, and one could be about the framing of those mentoring programs, uh, because there is no consensus in the literature about how we frame and how we define the theory of change and uh, main goals of those mentoring programs. Some of those programs we see in the literature are focusing on health promotion. So they are employing that health promotion perspective, and they are, because of that, they are focusing on the outcomes that are more uh, positive outcomes, like post-youth development, developmental assets, competence, resilience, self-efficacy, social skills building, and so on. So obviously, they would uh, they are less likely to assess substance use or other risk behavior. Uh, that could be related to the uh, to the um, focus of the program. Another only reason is uh, well, you know, some programs are doing both, so they are focusing on both protective and risk factors. They're trying to tackle uh, risk factors and they are trying to balance the health promotion perspective with the prevention perspective. And those are the programs that are assessing substance use. But uh, we have seen in the review that most of those programs are focusing on on younger youth, uh, younger adolescents, early adolescents, and they are less likely to initiate uh, use of uh, use of drugs. And there could be a, some you know, floor effect there. Uh, another possibility is um, is that there is this assumption, obviously, that in the mentoring literature that we see, and also for researchers and practitioners, that there is this emphasis on building strong and meaningful relationships um, between the mentor and the mentee, and how that will be protective against uh, initiation of use of drugs in the future. So the uh, the outcome of the intervention that may have been, um, you know, not necessarily assessed because we see that the longitudinal outcomes are uh, rarely, rarely, uh, you know, researched in the literature. So there could be also an effect of that. But there is also other part of your question I think is important. The other part is the substance use treatment research. Uh, and um, coming from the clinical field that I was trained as a clinician, that it was uh, spark, it was very surprising for me to see that uh, in our field, the, in the addiction field, that there are so many uh, evidence-based substance abuse programs that are um, especially focusing on adolescent substance abuse treatment. And there are some, uh, some of them that are manualized, they are standardized, uh, for, for instance, motivational interviewing. Uh, community reinforcement approach, multidimensional family therapy. These are, you know, few of the examples that I can give at that moment. But even though they are multi-component, they incorporate outreach, they incorporate case management from time to time. They don't necessarily incorporate mentoring. That's quite rare. And this is also something that we have seen in our review as well, that we saw uh, most of the programs that that examine substance use and you know whether mentoring has an effect of, on adolescent substance use, they were focusing on the pro- they were using a primary prevention framework, uh, and those youth meaning that the those youth were at uh, lower risk, uh, they were not necessarily using, or if they were using, they may have just experimented it, uh, so the risk was uh, quite uh, limited and minimal at that at that 
you know, in the in that sense. Uh, whereas in the substance abuse treatment research, we see that the use of paraprofessionals in the treatment process is usually referred as uh, self-help groups. Uh, and those self-help groups in those research projects are usually used as add-on to an already you know, established uh, evidence-based intervention, or they are used as a control condition. So I think uh, one reason that we see that you know, research is so thin in that sense is that um, the, in the substance abuse treatment research, the um, the mentored research, and they are not necessarily you know talking to each other. At least this is you know my perspective coming from a clinical training background. Uh, so I I learned about mentoring and I was I was doing research about mentoring, but the mentoring literature and the use of professionals in that process is framed in a quite different way than how it is framed. Uh, in clinical psychology or in in psychiatry, when you think about it. Great, thanks, Jazem. Yeah, and I appreciate your kind of nuanced and and you know multifaceted answer there. So it's, it's not just one reason; it's several factors. And you know, I, I think most folks would agree, and I think you hinted at this that most treatment work, most uh, kind of uh, efforts to build resilience in kids or do kind of primary prevention. Um, you know, it's all relationship driven, but whether researchers put the name mentoring on it, whether they view uh, people delivering those services as mentors or some other role, you know, it may not. And, uh, you know, for me, I think I just expected to see more of that, especially on the treatment side, because as you said, you know, when I think about something like the role of a sponsor in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, I mean, that sponsor is essentially a mentoring role, but I, I think, you know, some of those types of things are not studied uh, quite a bit. I, in fact, I don't think AA allows folks to to do research on them because of the anonymity and, and other things that are kind of baked into that approach. So um, it was interesting. I think the number that you guys came up with in your, in your review is only, I'm looking here, only four studies focused on substance abuse as a primary outcome. That uh, certainly was a number that was smaller than, than I would have expected. Mike, if I may, I I also think there are a couple of practical issues that might be coming into play. So, for instance, funding for youth mentoring programs and research has largely been focused on education and delinquency outcomes, perhaps social-emotional outcomes. In general, we don't see a lot of research funding focused on the impact of mentoring on health outcomes. So I think, you know, the evidence base might not be there as heavily as in other youth outcome areas just because of the, the lack of funding in it. Um, and, I'm, and I'm speaking for, you know, U.S.-based funding bodies. The other thing is, and, you know, we've seen some of this come out in my own research, is that, first of all, it's easier to get ethics approval to ask adults about their drug use. <laughs> it's much harder to get approval to ask minors about it. And it's also very uncomfortable for people to talk to young people about sensitive issues. We did some formative research interviews um, on my study about mentoring youth on substance use. And many of the mentors and, and program folks talked about what a need it is to guide young people on the issue. But it's rarely put into practice because they're either uncomfortable doing it or they don't know how to approach it in, in the proper way. So I think some of these practical issues might be coming into play as well. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. As a parent who recently had to have the the drug talk with one of my children, I can 
tell you how uncomfortable that is to broach some of those subjects. And I can imagine that for mentors in many programs, um, they want to help around that issue, especially if they think there might be a, a need or a concern there. But but you're right, bringing it up and then doing work about it, having real conversations about it is is challenging. So, Michelle, I want to stick with you here for a minute um, and just talk about one of the other things that struck me from your review was that you were both challenged in looking at the literature by the fact that these studies didn't really look at the topic of substance use and misuse in the same way. Uh, they were kind of looking at it from all kinds of different perspectives. So some of these studies are focused on the attitudes that youth have about substances. You know, do they think it's cool? Do they think it's uh, dangerous or not? Um, sometimes, you know, they would be focused on behaviors, but, you know, is it, did you use anything in the last month, the last week, the last year? So they're looking at it through different uh, time perspectives. Some studies, you said, lumped uh, all those substances together while others looked at them separately. So I guess just in general, how challenging was it to kind of look at these studies and, and kind of mush them together in some way so that you could say something global about what we know about this topic in general? Uh, it was very challenging. I mean, the gold standard in research is to have consistent and validated measures used in multiple studies so that you can compare findings across those studies. And as with any field, it takes a while for researchers to coordinate on their definitions and their measures of key constructs. So given that there was so little research to begin with, I'm not surprised that it was so varied in how the topic was examined. But moving forward, I, I think we need more nuance in our measures. For instance, you know, there were some studies that asked about you know, ha has the young person uh, tried any substances within the last given amount of time? Or, you know, how do you, how do you feel about substance use? And, and if you're talking about a youth smoking weed, that's much different than a youth who's taking heroin, right? So we need to, to separate out those different substances and, and have consistent measurement in, in how we're asking about it. Also, you know, asking about attitudes towards substance use and having that as a measured outcome is certainly one part of the prediction towards future use, but actually measuring substance use behavior should be the ultimate outcome. And we didn't see that as often in the studies that, that were included in the review. I also had something to add to that. Um, I, I agree that I think we definitely need a standardized way of assessing substance use behavior. And uh, I think the future mentoring research can draw from uh, substance use prevalence studies and epidemiology studies, uh, like the monitoring the future survey and looking at how they are assessing those outcomes. As Michelle mentioned, that they are assessing all the drug types separately. Uh, and in addition to that, they are assessing the frequency and the quantity of use separately which are important. So they are also, look, for instance, if you're looking at alcohol use, it's not only lifetime use, but it's also how frequently they have used and what was the quantity in one sitting and the binge drinking and the heavy drinking, they were all defined and uh, they were assessed. In addition to that, I think it's important that uh, they, they were assessing attitude rather than the behavior. 
um, then that could be related to a practical issue. Uh, that was my understanding. That was my guess because uh, in some of those programs that we were reading the re- when we were reading the research, we saw that some of those programs were targeting uh, really, really youth with minimal risk. So they may not have necessarily exper- experimented in the drugs. So they were looking at the attitude. That could be one way of going around it. And another possibility is that it may be uh, really uncomfortable to ask uh, those questions. And we know that sometimes you get the ethical approval, but you cannot necessarily get the approval of the, let's say, the school principal or the teachers or the parents to ask those questions. And uh, there's there's some stigma around it as well. And I think we also, in the mentoring research, like if you're focusing on uh, substance use outcomes, we also need to come up with uh, not only standard questions, but also age-appropriate questions. Because, for instance, in the monitoring future study, that the, the questions are uh, different in terms of their scope for each age group of adolescents. So I think that's also important. Yeah, I appreciate both of you kind of breaking down you know, why this was so complicated to look at and all the different things that researchers are looking at around this. And I, I think it's you know, none of those things are bad to look at. Uh, they all have relevance, I think, to this work. But uh, as you both noted, you know, when you then try and look at all of that to say something meaningful and, and comprehensive, you kind of wind up, it's like my chili recipe that has 800 ingredients in it, right? It's, it all comes together in the end in your review, but uh, it's a lot of different things in there to look at and, and think about. So I uh, appreciate you breaking that down a little bit. Uh, I don't want to keep our listeners in suspense here in terms of uh, we've talked about some of the complications of doing the evidence review, but I think, Jazem, I want to just ask you here to talk a little bit about what you found when you did look at all that research. I guess probably the best place to start with that is, does mentoring seem to be helpful here? Is mentoring seem like a good strategy either for preventing or stopping substance use and does that vary, I think, from substance to substance? You mentioned, uh, Michelle, you know, smoking a joint is uh, likely not as harmful to you as, as doing uh, a harder drug. So, uh, so Jazam, just what do, we, what do we know about the effectiveness of, of mentors to help with this issue? In our review, uh, when we reviewed the literature on that issue, we have seen that, as you mentioned, that there are very few studies looking at substance use outcomes. So it is really hard to just generalize those outcomes and say that, yes, mentoring is definitely helping to stop it. Because in order for us to say that, you know, it's helpful to stop that, we need to have more secondary and tertiary preventative programs or maybe even treatment uh, programs that, that, that implemented mentoring. But based on the primary uh, prevention programs and their effectiveness, we can say that uh, youth mentoring programs have promising uh, effects on uh, preventing uh, initiation of substance use, that we have seen some promising evidence on that. But in order to say that whether this would vary by substance, I think we need um, you know, more detailed research, more um, you know, uh, comprehensive studies that will look at um, you know, mentoring programs and varying different uh, drugs, because most of the programs we looked at, they were examining uh, marijuana use, and uh, and marijuana use could be just, you know, that they, they could be experimenting. And we 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 have some we have seen some studies that didn't necessarily specify the uh, drug type, and some of those programs were only assessing soft drugs. 
uh, and there is not much information about the hard drugs. Uh, so we can say for the primary prevention standpoint that we can say that the effects are promising, but obviously there are some moderating uh, variables. We have also seen we have also looked at some of the pathways that were important that could be related to uh, peer relationships. The school attachment, for instance, was something that was uh, researched. We also examined um, moderators such as gender and ethnicity and whether they, they could make any differences. Uh, but we haven't uh, we, we haven't seen that you know enough evidence to say well this is definitely the one type of drug that we see uh, that it is efficacious. Thank you, I appreciate that. And you know, un- unsurprisingly, I think you know you found a number of different things across those studies. And but as we were just discussing, you know, none of it consistent enough to draw a strong conclusion. And I always appreciate the research community for kind of couching their their summaries of things uh, cautiously, right? Because you don't want to come out and say, oh, yeah, this is always helpful in every situation with every drug or, or alcohol you can think of, and and we should just do it, right? Because it's, it's nuanced. It's more, you know, kind of situational, uh, if you will, in terms of its effectiveness. So I really appreciate it. And for folks who haven't read one of these NMRC evidence reviews before, I'll just note that each uh, of them is kind of written around the same four questions, uh, and they basically uh, break down to, you know, does mentoring seem effective on whatever the topic is? What kind of uh, mediates that? Meaning, what are the ways in which mentoring is helpful on this, if it is? Uh, And you mentioned moderators, Jazem, and that's, you know, basically kind of, does this work better for some folks or under some conditions than others? And then the fourth question is, uh, one around kind of uh, scale and adoption of this as a, at a large scale. So you say some things at the end of these reviews about how well mentoring has been applied nationally to this, to whatever the topic of the issue is. So, um, and each of those four sections in your review has really clear, bulleted, like summative takeaways, right? Conclusions at the end of each of those sections. So I encourage folks, if you want to really dig into the nuance of that, to go check out those and. Uh, it is summed up very nicely at the end of each of those sections. Michelle, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, and I appreciated this in in your review, you looked at both programmatic mentors and natural mentors. And uh, I appreciate that those are always included in, in these reviews. Uh, we often think about this work through the lens of a program uh, that's working with kids in a school or in a community setting. But most young people get their mentoring through people that they just know, right? Neighbors, uh, teachers, uh, folks that are just in their lives generally. So I wanted to ask you, you know, how did natural mentors and programmatic mentors kind of compare to one another? Did one of those types of mentors seem to be more effective than the other? Yeah, uh, there were a couple of studies that found that having a natural mentor was associated with lower levels of marijuana use, at least. And then there were a couple more studies that showed no impact on marijuana use for youth who were in formal programs. There was also one study that showed that youth who had a quote-unquote significant adult in their lives had lower illicit drug use in the past month compared to those who did not. Uh, But we can't definitively say that natural mentoring is a better way to address substance use compared to formal mentoring because we don't have studies that compare the two. 
Um, so you're really, in some sense, talking about apples and oranges. But perhaps just having a caring adult in a young person's life that they already know and trust, um, and this person guides them on substance use issues, maybe that's more effective for young people, at least when it comes to, to marijuana use. Just a, a quick follow-up on that. When there were programmatic mentors, and, and Jazam, you touched on this a little bit, I think, when you were talking about kind of the the lack of, of literature on this. I'm just curious, were the programmatic mentors that you uh, saw talked about in these studies, were they in kind of standalone mentoring programs, a, a big brothers, big sisters type of thing, or were they uh, kind of embedded in a treatment program of some kind? I think you'd mentioned earlier that you didn't see many examples of mentors uh, being kind of working alongside formal treatment, or at least they weren't called mentors in some of those studies. Is that fair? Yeah, definitely. We we saw um, we, we saw only two programs that were uh, focusing on the secondary prevention framework, which is uh, more which is which is involved in uh, youth who are uh, already using and they're experiencing some risks uh, with um, illicit or illicit drug use. And there was one study, for instance, that it was not necessarily in a treatment setting, but it was in a setting where people uh, were already using services. So mentoring was uh, part of those services that was being offered. Uh, that was uh, in a drop-in center that was offered for uh, homeless youth, for instance. But um, these were uh, a few exceptions. Uh, and I think th- there is room for a lot more research for uh, implementing mentoring in, uh, for instance, medical settings in the in the uh, treatment uh, process. Thanks. And I hopefully some of that is changing because one of the things that OJJDP did, in addition to asking us to kind of do this evidence review, is they uh, also funded an awful lot of work and made grants available to mentoring programs that wanted to do work specifically around uh, opioid misuse and, and other substance use issues. So hopefully there's actually more of that kind of, you know, mentors embedded in in treatment services type stuff happening as a result of those grants. Um, although I know many of those folks are focusing more on kind of the, the primary prevention end of things, but uh, hopefully there's more of that programming happening and, and growing in prominence and and scaling to a point where doing a, a nice study of it would be would be helpful. So I want to shift gears just a little bit here and talk about kind of who mentors in this and who mentors well around this topic. And Michelle, I know that some of your work in the past has focused on the concept of credible messengers, right? These are people that uh, have lived experiences, a personal journey, a background of some kind that makes them somebody that a, a, a mentee would listen to around a topic, right? Uh, somebody that brings some real world experience and knowledge to the table. Did you find evidence of credible messengers being important uh, here when you looked at the literature? Is it in your mind important for you know a mentor to have some working knowledge of these challenges if they're going to be mentoring a young person around substance use issues? Uh, I I don't think mentors have to be recovering from a substance use disorder to be a good mentor on the issue. 
um, although that would certainly give them credibility. But if a mentor has a close relationship with someone who has a substance use disorder, this might be helpful in, in being a good mentor to a young person. And, you know, the unfortunate reality is that these issues affect so many of us that almost all of us probably know someone well who has struggled with a substance use disorder. But aside from that, a, a mentor simply needs to understand the issue and I think most importantly, not view it as a moral issue, but rather a health concern. And a mentor needs to have examined their own stigmas regarding substance use. And I know this was mentioned by Jazem just a little bit previously. Um, I think this last part is particularly important for programs who want their mentors to address substance use. It's not just about telling kids not to use drugs. It's about modeling attitudes towards substance use that do not stigmatize people with disorders, do not make asking questions about it taboo. And it's important for mentors not to overreact when a young person discloses that they've been experimenting or wanting to experiment. Adolescents in particular are going to be curious about substances, whether it be alcohol or weed or other drugs. And that's just part of the adolescent development process. So a good mentor simply needs to be aware of that and create a space for a young person to ask questions without feeling ashamed. No, I really appreciate that, Michelle. And it's funny, we had Sam McQuillan on the podcast last season, and he talked a lot about uh, what he calls writing reflexes, right? You know, you should do this, you shouldn't do that, or, you know, kind of war stories. Back in my day, we, you know, so I'm just picturing mentors, you know, when their mentee discloses to them that they tried something or were at a party where something was happening, you know, I'm sure uh, those writing reflexes are, are, you know, the first thing that mentors reach for in the toolbox. But I I think you pointed out perhaps a, a subtler and more effective approach, which is, you know, to kind of just role model good attitudes and behaviors around those things. That might be a lot more powerful than um, moralizing, shaming, uh, shooting a young person. Uh, research, you know, I think has shown those things don't work very well. So I'm glad you you kind of mentioned uh, some things that mentors can keep in mind if a, a young person discloses something to them. Yeah. One other thing, uh, that modeling is so easy to do these days with particularly celebrities being very open about their own substance use struggles. Um, It would be very easy for a mentor to take a a news story from a celebrity and just bring it up to a young person and use that as a basis to have a conversation about it. It doesn't have to be somebody in in each of their lives um, that they would have to talk about. It could be someone more removed that could be used for for modeling that non-stigmatizing approach. Um, I also think that, you know, part of the mentor training could be geared towards, you know, those identifying those stigmas in any uh, attitudes, like negative or positive attitudes that they have about those issues and the stereotypes that they may have. But in addition to that, I think it's also important to educate mentors about uh, potential uh, cycles of misuse, Um, because when you're working on substance use issues, it's part of the rule. It's it's common that you would go through that cycle and uh, relapse is, you know, part of the process. And I think it's very important to also, um, you know, discuss with mentors uh, all that process and how they will tackle that process and how, because most of the time when people experience that, they see it 
they, they tend to see it and frame it as a failure or an, a, a, an experience that they feel like they are back to the square one, whereas it's just um, how it goes. Uh, and I think that's also very important in addition to the stigma. And um, another thing is, I think, it, obviously, it's important who the mentors are, but it's also very important to focus on what they do. So structuring the activities and also collaborating with youth uh, in that process uh, and uh, obviously providing that space for them is very important. That's that's not only the case for substance using youth, I think. It's also it's already something that we see in the mentoring research you know, and the, the, there, there is that research showing that the prescriptive mentoring has uh, some harmful effects, whereas the developmental mentoring is the one that's being more, more recommended. And having that um, more egalitarian relationship with the youth and working through that process would be, I think, also ideal for substance use issues because that's also a sensitive topic for them to bring up. Thanks to both of you for kind of clarifying that and giving us some more food for thought around how mentors should approach this. And I I really love the advice that if a young person relapses or if they do something uh, with a substance that the mentor uh, is disapproving of, it doesn't mean you've failed, right? It's just part of, you know, it, it's a process. I like the way you phrase that, Jazem. It's a process. And and I think, you know, even though we want the best for our, our young people, uh, they're going to make mistakes. They're going to have setbacks. They're going to make uh, errors in judgment. Our job is to help them keep making progress and keep moving forward. So I I appreciate that. You mentioned something, uh, cycles of of addiction. And, and, you know, I think one of the things that I think about, particularly around opioids, is, you know, the grip that these substances can have on families, uh, kind of top to bottom and multi-generational um, addiction issues within a household. And, and Jazem, one of the things you noted in your review was that um, parent and, and peer relationships are often a really strong protective factor against this, right? If you've got solid people in your corner uh, that are doing okay, it's easier for you to kind of have some resilience from from their presence in your life. But I think one of the challenges around opioids especially is the degree to which it has kind of devastated certain communities. And, you know, it's in pockets. It's not in every city in America is in the midst of it. But the places where it has hit hard, it's hit extremely hard. And so I'm thinking about, you know, if the role of mentors is to strengthen those relationships generally around the young person that seems like it may be hard to do in a community that's been really ravaged by by opioids. And so I guess my question is, what is the role of mentors and how can mentors be assets in situations where, you know, the parents or guardians or peers that the youth is spending time with um, are struggling with their own issues and, and are not as helpful as we'd like here? How can mentors navigate that? I think it's important uh, to also think about where the substance misuse, the context in which the substance misuse is occurring. Uh, so we we see that uh, the drug use itself has a subculture on its own. And especially when you think about the adolescent development, it's part of their affiliation and um, it may have become part of their identity development. Uh, so I think mentors uh, in that process 
has a very, very important role because the um, the prevention of su- substance use or alleviating the use, if there is a continuous use at that moment, uh, is related to changing uh, to some extent uh, the context of the of the use, or uh, you know ex- because they may be exposed to so many environmental risk factors related to you know, you know some peers that are already using or some uh, family issues that they are experiencing at that moment. There are a couple of ways I think mentors can be helpful in that context. Uh, one is uh, giving hope, obviously, because we know uh, this is one of the important aspects of change in behavior, the motivation aspect, and uh, giving hope for recovery or give, giving hope for change in their lives. And the uh, re- mentoring relationship that they build with the youth can be a trustworthy relationship that can be a corrective experience for youth to build on that for future relationships. And another thing is we also know uh, from research that uh, the the impact of peers is important and family is important. But in addition to that, uh, boredom is an important uh, risk factor. And uh, structuring uh, structured activities or helping youth to plan, plan ahead, plan their future, being future-oriented, um, or... Uh, helping them to establish new life routines that they can enjoy uh, could be another way of helping youth. Um, and, and in addition to that, it's important to also not uh, many marginalized youth are reluctant to seek services when they need it. This is the case in general for substance use treatment, uh, but especially for minority youth, they, they are less trustworthy. They find the uh, mental health professionals and in general the health system not necessarily trustworthy. So mentors may encourage youth and they can they can identify if there are issues going on and also encourage youth to seek services if they feel that youth really need care and counseling. So I think mentors can have a variety of roles depending on to what extent the youth are at risk. You know, for many mentoring programs, the mentor's role is to provide social capital for the young person. So even if a mentor can't answer all the questions that a young person has or provide support in every way needed. I really see it as part of a mentor's job description to find out who can um, provide that support and help the young person to make that connection. Great. Thanks, Michelle. I appreciate that. Josem, I want I have one last question for you here. And, and I want to make sure we talk about opioids specifically, because I think, as I mentioned at the beginning of the, the recording here, that was the major emphasis uh, from the administration and in us looking at this. They really wanted to know, you know, how can mentoring help with the opioid crisis in particular? And I know that there wasn't much, I mean, we already talked about, there wasn't a whole lot of research on substance misuse in general, uh, but probably very little on opioids to date, uh, given how, you know, recently we've started looking at this in terms of the research but what should we know in terms of this conversation about opioids specifically? Do these substances present a unique challenge that requires a different kind of approach from mentors? Or is it just, you know, the approach is the same as you would take probably around other substance misuse topics? But I don't know, I'm just interested in your thoughts around opioids specifically, given, you know, how lethal uh, this crisis has been. Uh, how hard it can be to break addiction to opioids, you know, compared to other substances. 
I'm just curious if there's anything specific about opioids that our listeners should know. Um, I think uh, the the case of opioids is is a unique one in that sense. Uh, it's quite different from you know building a relationship with a youth who is uh, misusing uh, weed or alcohol or some other you know soft drugs because of the toxicity and the high addictive uh, power of the drug. And also by the opioids, it's important uh, to keep in mind that we are talking about a range of drugs. So currently what we see in the United States, I mean, what we are experiencing in the United States is more about uh, the fentanyl crisis and the related uh, deaths, unfortunately. But the, opioid, uh, the opioids are a large class of drugs, so that could also include uh, prescribed medic- painkillers, opioid painkillers such as Vicotin and, and Oxycodone. That's important to keep in mind because they may be accessible for youth, uh, not necessarily as compared to some other drugs like heroin, for instance. I, I think the um, mentoring can be integrated to some of the outreach programs. And Michelle touched on this a little bit, so how um, mentors can help youth to find the support, even though they may not necessarily have the information, they can direct them to the information. So similar to that, the uh, outreach programs uh, that are implemented for opioid addiction, for instance, could be one way of, you know, integrating mentoring. And because the outreach workers are the ones that are advocating uh, for for clients uh, in recovery and it provides uh, services or they connect them to services uh, and provide basic needs. So one of those, uh, so those components can be integrated in mentoring programs or the mentoring program program staff can collaborate such programs uh, to reach out to youth to support them in that process. And I think another possibility is to uh, maybe use, I haven't seen any studies on this, uh, and I, I thought about the youth-initiated mentoring, using the youth's own uh, social network and help them identify an, a non-parental adult as a positive role model for them and uh, training those people and uh, getting them, engaging those people in the program to support the youth. So that could be another way of, uh, I think, integrating mentoring. Um, but there are definitely unique challenges related to the opioid use because we also see there are, you know, a lot more legal consequences of use, uh, health consequences, lots of health risks, uh, if, especially for IV drug users. So the, the, I think that would definitely need more teamwork. I think that's the important part. Great. I appreciate that. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned kind of misuse of prescription drugs here as well. You know, I, I think mentors may want to be particularly mindful around that. Uh, you know, there's plenty of households where, you know, you're not going to find marijuana or alcohol or other hard substances, but in the medicine cabinet, you know, someone had a surgery two years ago and got a big bottle of pills sent home with them and, uh, the youth may have access to substances in that way that they never would. You know, they're not going to go out and, and buy heroin somewhere, but it's right there in the medicine cabinet at some level. And and that's a really unique challenge, I think, uh, with this, with opioids in particular. Related to that, you know, I think a mentor can can help young people to be critical consumers of information. So, of course, opioids are unique because they serve a medical need. Um, but being able, having the skills to research when an opioid 
may be appropriate, you know, under doctor supervision, what alternatives might be available and how to transition off of them. So even if if the mentee doesn't does not need them now, they will have the skills to be an informed patient in the future if the need ever arises. But in general, I think, you know, that's a big hole that mentors can fill is teaching young people how to be critical consumers of information and how to understand facts and research. And I could give you a list of instances where that's especially relevant today, but it certainly applies to narcotic use. So that even if there is a medical need, the young person is informed in how they are using them. Great. Excellent point, Michelle. And as always, more information and more education is the answer. I appreciate you bringing that up. So I guess let's just wrap up this part of the discussion here. I want to make sure you have kind of an open chance, each of you, to to just kind of talk to the mentoring field a little bit about the opioid epidemic, right? So we've covered a lot of topics here, but I guess my final question to each of you is, you know, what would you tell a mentoring program somewhere here in America that just wants to get more involved in addressing the opioid epidemic in their community? Should they, you know, work with a, a treatment provider to you know, provide mentors to young people that are in recovery? Should they uh, start with early prevention and do that family strengthening and peer strengthening? What What's the best thing to do? Or, or is there not a best thing to do? Does it, is it all good work? So I, I guess I'm just curious, what would you tell a practitioner on how they can maybe be helpful and, and get involved in, in helping with this crisis? So I'll go back to the the stigma piece. Maybe this is the social psychologist in me talking, but I really see that as the biggest barrier to addressing substance use right now um, and getting people who need treatment into those services. You know, treating substance use as a moral issue rather than a health issue and shaming people who get involved in use is really uh, not helping us to address this crisis. So I, I also think early prevention is key. You know, in my research, we're working with kids ages 10 to 14 years old and their mentors to address questions about substance use before the use of them ever happens. And some people have said, you know, 10 years old to start talking about weed and heroin, right? Come on. <laughs> but if you look at the stats, talking to teens about it at ages 15, 16, that's too late. They're already already trying trying it, or at least they have peers who are. So for me, that very early prevention piece is the key. Um, and for kids with use substance use in their family, I mean that's a, an entirely other issue that really needs attention. I was talking to a colleague recently about the opioid epidemic in West Virginia, which has decimated some of the communities there, and and he was saying you know some of those communities do not have resources for the children of parents who have a substance use disorder. There might be a boys and girls club in the community, but that's about it. And so the next step for my own research is to think about how we get mentorship into those communities where there's so many needs and where kids are literally losing parents to the opioid crisis. That, that is where you know, mentorship is, is severely needed to, to help these young, young people to cope with it. Great. Thanks, Michelle. How about you, Jazam? I believe it's also important to start with formative research and uh, look and go to the community and uh, talk to them about their needs, uh, to understand their priorities, to examine their resources, their strengths in addition to that, and start from there and build from there. Because 
for practitioners, you know, they, 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 they may have some priorities and they may have some ideas about what the community needs. But uh, in, in terms of that uh, program for, you know, to make a real difference, the community really needs to buy in that, you know, it's needed, it's important, it is necessary for them. So I think it's important to uh, understand what they are worried about the most on that topic uh, and going from there and, you know, going spiral in that sense. And I also uh, agree that with Michelle in that sense that primary prevention is very is definitely very important and starting as early as possible, especially in early adolescence, is very important because in we see in middle adolescence the uh, the adolescents are more likely to experiment. And uh, for pr- practitioners, I'll suggest that if they are developing any programs to implement in the community that I would uh, recommend that they go and examine some of the modules that are already available out there from, um, you know, clearing houses that that have shown to be effective. So they can use some of the modules of those evidence-based programs in their studies. They can incorporate them. Uh, One example is Strengthening the Families program, for instance. This is a very, you know, well-known prevention program for adolescents that incorporates uh, parents. Um, it incorporates parent skills training. And it is uh, it has been shown to be one of the model programs. So I would suggest, you know, delving into uh, into those, you know, resources and maybe not necessarily, you know, you may not, they may not necessarily have all the resources to implement the program as it is, but they can get some modules or some uh, techniques, some strategies from those programs uh, so that they can have relatively more efficacious uh, program to implement. And we also know in the mentoring field, for instance, there, there are those studies that are using motivational interviewing recently. It is showing some promising effects in school settings. Uh, that could be another, I think, strategy, you know, using motivational interviewing. And it is also fitting in with the perspective Michelle was suggesting because Motivational interviewing is also starting with that, you know, unconditional positive regard. And the training part is all about the change talk and accepting people as they are uh, and dealing with stigma. That's the crux uh, of the training. So I think that would also fit in with that perspective. So I appreciate uh, the great information you've shared with us here about how mentors can be helpful around substance uh, use and misuse and, and the role they can play in the opioid crisis. Uh, just great information. I'm going to start a new feature this year on the podcast, a new way of ending each episode. Uh, in the past, you know, I'd ask my guests uh, kind of a goofy question, you know, one of these, if you were a tree, what kind of tree would you be? That kind of thing. <laughs> but this year, I'm going to I'm gonna flip it around. I'm going to give you all the ability to ask me a question. So we'll call this reverse rotation here and I will become the uh, interview subject and you can ask me anything you want. So I believe you two flipped a coin and Jazem, uh, you won. And so you will be uh, the one to ask the question this time. So go ahead and uh, ask me whatever you'd like. Uh, sure. It's, um, it's, not a, it's not a very goofy question, but uh, I'm just curious if you had a natural mentor growing up and who this person was and how that was for you and so on. Yeah. If I had a natural mentor growing up, yeah. I, this is going to sound kind of weird, but I don't know if I did have a mentor. Like I had obviously people that 
cared about me a great deal and, and adults whose company I enjoyed and kind of looked up to and admired. But I don't know if any of that ever morphed into what I would consider to be a full-blown mentoring relationship. And that's always kind of bothered me a little bit, having worked in the mentoring field for 20-some years now. But I think that's the experience of many young people. I mean, mentors done research showing that about one in three young people grows up and, and reaches adulthood without ever having had someone that filled that role, or at least that's not the name they put on it. So I think the one person I would mention uh, out of many, but the one person that I think if I can look back and say they influenced me in, in kind of the arc of my my life would be back at Churchill High School in Eugene, Oregon, uh, Mrs. Bennett. I'm not even sure I remember Miss Bennett's first name, but Miss Bennett was my uh, 10th grade English teacher. And one of the things she did every Friday was she allowed students to get up and read original writing that they had done. Uh, sometimes that was a poem. Sometimes that was a short story. Sometimes, uh, you know, it was it was uh, more of a, a you know, diary entry, an essay, a memoir kind of thing. You know, so an opportunity for young people to have their voice. And I started sharing uh, little works of fiction that I, I, you know, at one point in my life, I wanted to be a science fiction author. So I would get up and read these, you know, fairly ridiculous and in retrospect, embarrassing science fiction short stories, you know, as my attempt to be, uh, you know, Ray Bradbury at a young age. But that was the first time that someone really encouraged my writing and thought that I had talent for uh, expressing thoughts via the written word. And so I really embraced that, wound up being an English major in college, you know, like all English majors went on to fame and fortune. No, huh? <laughs> but uh, that was somebody who, you know, the fact that I do mostly writing for a living now, I, I think I look back and that person really gave me a lot of confidence in my voice and really made me feel like I had uh, something to share with the world. So thank you, Miss Bennett. Uh, you're out there somewhere. But yeah, I, it's funny. I don't think I ever had, I never had one of those 10 year things with some elder person that, um, that I can honestly say, you know, shaped me, but you know, hopefully I turned out okay anyways. So well, thank you both so much for uh, joining us today, talking about your evidence review. Uh, for any of our listeners who want to download that evidence review, just go to the NMRC website, and that's at nationalmentoringresourcecenter.org.org. Um, if you go to the What Works in Mentoring section, you'll find a little uh, section in there for evidence reviews, and, and you can download it from there. It's a really great read. It's only 25 or so pages I write a little piece at the end kind of for mentoring practitioners on things that they might want to consider. Many of the topics we talked about today are discussed there as well. So I encourage folks to check that out. So thank you, Michelle and Jazem, for, for joining us. And once again, thank you to OJJDP for sponsoring this podcast and, and allowing us to do this awesome research work. If this inspired you to do something around substance uh, misuse in your program and your work with young people, but you aren't quite sure how to proceed with it, just a reminder that the NMRC offers free technical assistance to any mentoring program in the U.S. If you go to that uh, website that I mentioned earlier, nationalmentoringresourcecenter.org, uh, there's a big red Get Help uh, button in the upper right-hand corner. Just click on that, and we'll go about uh, assigning you to work with one of our 
cadre of experts around the country and get you some real practical on the ground help for your mentoring program. So that's always available to you uh, via the website. So uh, with that, thank you for joining us today. And we hope that you found this to be helpful. And, you know, uh, look, uh, mentoring is something that is often led with the heart, right? And, and love and soul. Uh, but I think it's also important to remember that mentoring is something that has real science behind it and real research. And we're learning more about how to do this work every day. So I appreciate you taking a little bit of time to join us, listen to a little research conversation, and hopefully turn around and apply this to your work with young people and strengthen what you're offering them and their communities. So on behalf of OJJDP and the NMRC, thanks for joining us. And we'll see you next time on Reflections on Research.